0: So over the last year, I have lost the ability in our house to pick the movie that Carlin and I watch. I, I, I like to watch movies. I enjoy them. I, I get really excited. But unfortunately, over the last year or so, every movie I've picked out, the protagonist, the one we're rooting for, ends up loveless or lifeless. And she's like, no more. I'm not investing another two hours in something that is going to leave me disappointed, dejected, and wanting something more. These movies haven't ended happy but confusing or frustrating or sad. And she said, I'm tired of rooting for a team that doesn't win to catch a guy that gets away for a relationship I have been excited for to dissolve. Why? Because the end matters. The end matters. And so today, as we flip to the end, what does God say in his final book? So where have we been in the story of God? This one story that God has been writing from the beginning of time. We have seen nothing turn into all things. We have seen a perfect creation and the imperfect inhabitants. We have seen it's a story of choices. God's chosen people and our choice to rebel. We have seen his perfect rules and our broken promises. We have seen a good land, but an ungood people. We have seen rejection of the great king for a godless king. We have seen warnings ignored, punishment endured. We have seen a return but a failure to repent. We have seen that God has had to step into our world so that He can make a way for us to step into His. We have seen that the Son of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. He dies for us and He delivers us from the curse of death. And we ask, what just happened? What does this mean and what do we do now? And we understand that it is now our job to go and to tell what God has done in us, for us, and through us to anyone that will listen. So now as we flip to this last book, Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to start. Revelation chapter 1, John is writing the revelation of Jesus Christ. John is the disciple of Jesus. And what does he say in verse 17? When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. John is given the task of describing the indescribable. Today I have like four or five just random lessons that we can take from the book of Revelation and hopefully tie them all together. But John's first thing that we are to take from this is he is trying to describe the indescribable. Forty-six times John uses the word like. Not because he has this uh, speech impediment because he grew up as an early 2000s teenage girl where he just says, like after every little thing. No. John is trying to put into the feeble language and in the inadequate language of man describe the greatness and gloriousness of God. Look back at verse 14 with me. He says this, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like sun, shining in full strength. John is not saying his face was the sun. He's going, I have nothing to conceptualize what I am seeing, and so I am trying to give you what I am picturing. I am trying my best to describe what is going on here. It's like John has woken up from a dream. And you've done that before. You're like, guys, I had the craziest dream. So like they were here and they were here, but they don't know each other. But in the dream, they were actually like best friends. It was great. And we were on a mountain, but it wasn't cold, but it was snowing. And then there was a fire. And and you're like, "What, what in the world are you talking about? But it all made sense in my dream. And now as I try to tell it, I I don't have the language to describe what I just experienced. This is what John is doing. I'm doing the best I can to describe with you all that I just saw. So John will use a bunch of symbols and signs. John will use symbols and signs to try to, to, to explain. Now, this is not an invitation for Nicolas Cage or Tom Hanks or some random guy off the grid in New Mexico to try to figure out everything. OK, this isn't a secret code that we're trying to decipher. And if we can just figure it out, we can sell our story to the National Enquirer and they will give us lots of money because we can predict the time and the place that all of this is going to happen. No, that's not the heart of this. Jesus will say in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels nor the son of man only the father knows the goal of revelation is not to try to figure it all out it's to be amazed it's to lead us to worship it's to show us what is coming so that we can have hope for today john is writing to real people that's why the first two uh, the first three chapters is sent letters to seven different churches Saying, here is what you need to repent of. Here's where you need to persevere. Here, you're writing to real people in a real situation, at a real time. And so we don't need to try to turn Revelation into something it is not. So continuing on, chapter 6 through 16, the second lesson is, Evil will rule the world. Now, some of us really recoil at that. And it's why we go and we ask that question, how can God be good if he allows bad things to happen? Evil rules this world. It's fact. It's prophesied and promised. He will show us in chapter 6 through 16 that these evil symbols of the beast and the woman will represent nations. Who are pursuing power and prestige and wealth and luxury in their own glory. And over the course of this, it will will show that God will judge them. There will be seven bowls. There will be seven uh, trumpets. There will be seven signs where God is showing the people. You need to repent. You need to turn. A lot of these look like the exodus. There are hail and locusts and blood and poisoned water. All trying to get people To turn back to God. But no matter how much God desires them to return. Rebellion persists. What do we take from that? We don't need to be surprised by an evil and godless world or an evil and godless nation. Each nation that has been before now has all fallen into the trap of Babylon. And really Babylon is a catch-all term for every nation. Greece or Rome, Babylon, Egypt, Tyre, Sidon, all of these people and all of these nations are going to pursue one thing, their own glory. They are going to pursue how to make themselves fat and rich and healthy and wise and smarter and more able to do anything. Every nation will trust in its own strength and its own wealth and believe the sun will never set on it Its goal is to advance its own kingdom. Not the kingdom of God. That's what we see in 6 through 16. Now lesson 3. Evil will be judged. Finally and fully. Chapter 17, 18, 19 and 20 will show that. Read with me if you will. Flip to chapter 17. Revelation 17 starting in verse 1. Then. Then. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters and whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast That was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality, and on her forehead was the name written was written a name of mystery, excuse me, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, and I saw the woman drink, drunk with the blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. If you've never read Revelation, that's a good taste of it. Lots of symbolic. Lots of imagery. Lots of uh, trying to show us what is happening. But did you see the woman on the beast? The prostitute. Notice, she's not destitute, barely clothed, struggling to get by Looking like she's been on heroin for the last two years. No. She's adorned in scarlet. She is prestigious. She is beautiful. She is royal. If we continue to think that sin is going to look like a homeless person on the street and it's just, oh, I just want to avoid it, no. The enticement of the great prostitute is beauty and luxury. It's pleasure. It's greatness. This is what is enticing the kings and the merchants and the sailors and the craftsmen and the traders to fall in love with her and to give themselves to her. This is what entices us to choose sin when we know it's only going to lead to harm because it feels good. It seems good. It looks good. Sin is enticing. It's intriguing. John even gets to the point at the end of verse 6. He says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. This is what we are talking about. But then in chapter 18, we see that evil is judged. It says this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. Then verse 2, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. I mean, she was powerful, prestigious, luxurious. Everybody wanted to be her or with her. Fallen, fallen is she now. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt... For every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of her passion. Of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich. From the power of her luxurious living. What's happening? The woman that everybody has chased after. The one that everybody has spent their life pursuing. In an instant. fallen the voice at the work at the hand of God evil is judged fully and finally it will end chapter 18 with the Kings the merchants the sailors the tradesmen the craftsmen mourning her loss because she was their meal ticket she was what gave them purpose and happiness she was what filled them up they thought she was everything that life was about. And in an instant. It was gone. While there is mourning on the earth. There's rejoicing in heaven. Chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We will see in chapter 19, there's a celebration. The marriage supper of the lamb, what Jesus was pointing to in this great banquet, in this great feast is now realized as the bride is met with the bridegroom. The people of God, the bride of Christ, now are wed fully and completely with the groom and are now experiencing what God has always desired. Furthermore, sin and Satan are defeated. Chapter 20, Satan is thrown into a pit. Verse 10, he is thrown into a pit with the false prophets and the beasts where they will be tormented day after day forever and ever. Okay. That was a lot. Sorry. Just trying to clear up some of all this mess. Chapter 6 through 16, evil will rise. 17 through 20, God will judge and be victorious. And that leads John or at least theologians to understand this. It's a phrase I need you to catch. We live in the already but not yet. We live in the already, but not yet. John is writing what will be, but we're stuck in what is. So the other day I was watching a movie with Cooper. My Cooper, not Big Cooper. We'll tell a story about Big Cooper in a second. Two Coopers. All right. The other day, Cooper and I, we have Disney Plus, and so we're trying to like mix it up. And so we watched The Little Mermaid. I haven't watched The Little Mermaid in probably 25 years. And in that 25 years, I've heard sermons that bring up the Little Mermaid, but they bring up the original fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, where in the end, Ariel actually kills Eric because he marries some other woman. And uh, it's a really sad story. But I was like, Disney, I can't remember what happens. And I know, like, even though Sebastian is setting up this great scene as they row the boat, you know, and he wants to kiss the girl. I mean, like, Chris Harrison could not have arranged a better date than what Sebastian did. And yet the kiss doesn't happen. And and I know, I'm like, okay, guys, something's going to have to turn out good. And, like, Cooper's like, why is a mermaid not a mermaid anymore? And I'm like, she gave up her voice because she wanted to do this. And, you know, it was a big deal. It was a bartering system. We'll see how it goes. So then Ursula comes back as this woman. She's going to try to steal Eric. Eric is falling in love, they arrange this wedding, and Ariel is swimming without with legs, not a fin, and she's trying to get to the boat as fast as she can. Flounder's pulling her, she gets to the boat, the birds stop the wedding, and the whole time I'm going, how is this gonna work out? The sun is setting, it's not gonna happen, she's gonna dissolve, she's gonna go back, it's gonna be terrible. And all this anxiety is building up within me because I'm watching The Little Mermaid and I forgot the end. <laughs> but you know how Disney is, they're not gonna leave it like that. There, there, of course, somehow, some way, Ariel and Eric end up together, and it's happily ever after. When we know the end, we don't fret the middle. Guys, we know the end. We know what will be, and it gives us hope in what is. We live in the already but not yet. This is what John is writing, guys. Believe this because it'll get you through whatever you're experiencing. You you think this is bad? What do you think persecution under Nero looked like? You you think that not being able to define a gender in this way and that we live in this. Okay. What do you think when just by saying the name Jesus, or what do you think for our brothers in China right now that have to meet in underground churches because if they are found out, they are going to die? What do you think about in Iran when somebody then gives their life to Christ, they have to disown their family? Do you know why? Because they know what's going to happen in the end. And that's the only way they can have faith in today. The already but not yet. We know God was victorious. We know evil will be judged. We know the woman will fall. We know Satan will be defeated. The already but not yet gives us hope and hopelessness. It allows us to have peace in persecution. It allows us to believe. Even in those moments of unbelief. Because we look beyond now. To what will be. We don't fret the middle. Because we know the end. Revelation is the. End It's the happily ever after that is promised So we can sit As we read the Bible And as we did over the course of this series We can sit and we go How in the world was Israel so stupid To wander in a wilderness Instead of going and experience the promised land We can sit and go How did they not listen to Isaiah And Jeremiah and Ezekiel And Malachi and Hosea How did they not get it We open up in the New Testament and we go, why did the Pharisees, who've got this thing memorized, not understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, sent to save this world? But how many times do we forget what we already know? How many moments do we spend anxious about decisions, about our life and giving it up when God is saying, I've already won. Yes, lose your life here for my sake. Because when you lose your life here for my sake, you will gain it. The already, but not yet. It's powerful. I told you I'd tell a story about Big Cooper. So if Big Cooper and I sat down at a chessboard to play. Before a pawn is moved, the game is over. I may... Steal a queen or a rook or the horsey thing? (laughs) I may even get close. But we both know before anything happens, the end. And when you know the end, it should change how you play. When we know the end, it should change how we live. Last thing Lesson 5, Chapter 21. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall neither be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed. And behold, he was seated on the throne. And he said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha. And the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the end, God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, there was Eden with the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. In the end, there is a new Jerusalem. God dwelling with his people. In the beginning it was very good. But we brought sin in and all of its collateral damage. In the end, there's no more sin, no more death. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more tears. We will experience what God has always intended. His perfect creation, and dwelled by his perfect presence, and inhabited and enjoyed by his prized possession that he has made perfect through the perfect Lamb. And who will these new inhab- I mean, who will these inhabitants be? We're going to end with this Revelation chapter 7. John gives us a picture of this heaven. He's seen 144,000 once again, just showing that each tribe, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, Israel is represented there. But also, then he says this, after that, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, from every tongue and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, our God. Ooh, that's good. Who sits on the throne into the Lamb. A number too great to number. A great magnitude. Every tribe, tongue, nation, people, language, standing and worshiping, honoring the true God, cleansed by the same blood. I'm going to end my teaching and college group for the semester like this. Little Coop is about to turn four. May 16th. Another day, we were walking, and he said, "Dad, I want to invite everybody to my birthday." I said, "Okay, cool. That sounds good. We just get a bigger cake. That's more fun for me." I said, "All right. So who's everybody?" He said, "I want to invite my school friends." I said, "Okay." So he said, "Ella and Lucy and Reed and Rhino and Reef and Noah and Owen and Annie." I said, "Okay, that's great." And Miss Kim and Miss Kristen. Okay, cool. And I want to invite my best friends, Henry and Roland, okay, and my church friends, Carter and Bryson and Caroline and Leah. I couldn't understand what he was saying for Leah, so he had to go, Look, look, Leah. I was like, Okay, thanks, bud. And then he said, I want to invite my family. And he named my parents, Carlin's parents, our sisters. And then he invited family friends. And then he said, I want to invite Mr. Troy, and Ms. Paige, and Josh, and Allison, and Bill. And he said, I want to invite my college friends. And I want to invite my soccer friends. I want to invite everybody. And I was walking in, and I, I was just thinking at first, I was thinking, he is so naive to think that it would be a fun birthday party with all those people. <laughs> and as the host... I'm sitting there going, okay, Cooper, let's just go down to one faction of people in your life. Let's just get your school friends, because then those parents can all resonate over one thing. We can all get along. Let's just get your church friends. We all know each other. We've all been friends. We can get along. Or family friends. Or just family. Or whatever. And then Revelation hit me. It hit me. Because... I want to make it simple where everybody can get along. But in doing that, I want to eliminate some people's invitation. I want to say no. I want to discourage inviting so that it will be comfortable. But do you see the picture in Revelation? A picture that if I was the bouncer outside... Heaven, I'm not sure if I would have let everybody in. I would have said, well, they're too extreme or too radical or too weird. They're too loud or too awkward or too different or too much. Wouldn't it be easier if we just picked only people that spoke the same language or were part of the same denomination or had the same worship styles? Like, wouldn't it be easier if we just all got, you know, one faction of people? And I learned as I was just thinking through this. Naive is an mm, ignorant word in a sense. But loving is a better way to understand it. Our God desires every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every color, every country, every person. Because they all have His image within them. They all bear it proudly. And he desires that they come and celebrate in this marriage supper of the Lamb. That they are a part of the end. Because the only other alternative is to be thrown in that fire with Satan and the beast. For everlasting torment and separation. Band, you guys come up as we finish this so we can sing as we go. But... If you and I were God, would we live with this end in mind? That all people from every nation, every tribe, every country, every color, every worship style, everything different, would come to worship Him together in spirit and truth, in one voice, in one song, singing out. Even the people that hurt you. Even the people that have rejected you. Even the people that are too far gone. Even the people that just bother you. Do I love people in such a way that I am living to show them the end and inviting them to join me? May pray.